0: Welcome to the Work and Wonder podcast. In this podcast, I share spiritual insights gained from my studies. I'm a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I use the Book of Mormon as my primary study material. I'll also reference the Bible and other scriptures, talks, or resources that I find helpful. My goal is to share simple, short, and sweet messages that build faith and inspire changes in our lives that bring us closer to Jesus Christ. Right here we are on the seventh episode, and yes, I did miss last week. The reason why is because of this week's episode topic. Last week, I came across it and decided I would like to do an episode on it, but found myself ill-equipped to deliver an episode last week. So I spent some more time studying this week, and I have prepared it. I think it's ready to present. So this is a great topic. I labeled this ty- uh, episode, Why Did Christ Have to Die? So this is going to encompass the atonement, resurrection, justice, mercy, and a lot of other great topics. And just of these ones that I've mentioned already, you can tell it's pretty loaded. Um, These topics have gotten the most attention of any probably in Christianity. And so as such, uh, this is just a sliver of what's out there. And I think it's a good sliver. I hope that you guys can appreciate it because I think it's a beautiful aspect and some great things I'm going to be talking about here. But there are also other many great resources that go into great depth about the atonement and about justice and mercy. And so don't let this be your stop and this be your, um, <laughs> your max depth that you reach in here. I think this is something we should study daily and often, for sure. So I'm going to start out with some questions. And these are going to be about Christ, His atonement, and the resurrection. And just for starters here, or for prefacing this information Uh, I'll define some key terms just for anyone who's not really familiar with my terms I'm using. So when I say atonement, I'm referring to the death and suffering of Jesus Christ for the sins of all mankind. When I say resurrection, I'm referring to how Christ, after he was dead, raised himself from the dead, uh, reuniting his spirit with his body. And this will also occur to everyone who has or will die in this life. So, I think those are probably the only two I can think of at this point. I'll try to discuss any other key terms that may be unfamiliar with anyone um, as we go along. Okay, so let's jump in. Here are some questions to get us started. Why did Christ die? Why did humans need to be redeemed? Why did God make us fallen and sinful if it would mean having to redeem us through Christ's suffering and death? Why can't we pay for our own sins? Who's getting paid for the sins anyway? Isn't God in charge? Can't he just waive the penalty? Who decided it was just to punish humanity with an unbearable punishment that they're incapable of paying? And how is it just that a person pays for the sins of another? Why does Christ suffering and dying satisfy anyone or anything, including justice? That seems like an odd thing to lead to satisfaction. Justice is confusing. Who invented it? Where did it come from? What happens if justice isn't paid? So these are some great questions. Some of them were inspired by a post I saw on Cora, which is a site kind of like Reddit, just a question and answer forum, where they were discussing this topic and question of why did Christ really have to die? And I think some of this uh, speculation and questioning comes from misunderstandings about the nature of God and the nature of the reality and laws of the universe. Um, One difference that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has with some other mainstream Christians is that we do not believe in creation ex nihilo, which I don't know why we're using Latin terms anytime in English, but that's a Latin term that um, means from nothing. So we don't believe that God created everything from nothing, but that matter has always existed and that God created or um, reformed things. Uh, as part of his creation. So we still believe he's the creator. But anyway, why I bring this up is because if you do believe in a God who just started from nothingness, like not even a vacuum, I mean, absolutely nothing, (laughs) uh, then it is kind of crazy because that puts God in a tricky scenario where he has to be responsible for everything the way it is, including the laws of justice. And so you can always speculate and say, God could have done better. He could have done this a certain way. He could have tweaked this. He could have not written that as a law. He, you know, you could even ask, like, he didn't even have to create the devil. Why did he create the devil? Um, Why did he create evil in the first place? And, you know, you can go on and on and on. But we're going to start from the assumption that truth has always existed along with God. And the elements and matter of the universe have always existed. And God His place is the righteous judge, overseer, executioner, enforcer, and uh, also the merciful father of the universe. So I don't want to get too much in that, uh, on that tangent, but that's just a little, I guess, information about the subject of questioning and speculating about this, asking questions of why didn't God do this this way and such. Okay, so we're going to cut that tangent off, and I'm going to just start from the beginning and explain from the creation of all things and with Adam and Eve and the fall, and I'm going to go through this, and it's going to touch on a lot of these questions, if not all of them, and then after that, I'll readdress these questions and try to give answers that are um, kind of captured in the things that we're going to be covering today. Okay, so the plan of happiness is what this is called. That entails God's plan for the progression of his spirit children to grow and develop and become like he is, which is what he wants. He wants to us to inherit all things. So in the beginning we were with God, right? Doctrine and Covenants 9329 says, Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. So, like it says, we're in the beginning. Uh, with God, enjoying a state of glory in his presence. Uh, Section 93 of Doctrine and Covenants, verses 30 through 31 says, All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it, to act for itself, as all intelligence also, otherwise there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. So this not only speaks of man in his pre-mortal state as intelligence or spirit being with God, which, yeah, we, we don't know a ton about that topic, but we do know we were with God and that he fathered us somehow. He became our father. And here it also notes that we have had agency from the beginning. Intelligence has agency to act for itself. And that which receives light continues in light and grows and develops. So um, we progress by learning truth and receiving it or receiving light. God wants us to progress. Our eternal progression does not occur by God snapping his fingers for us to level up. That's not how it works. It occurs through a process with steps where each step is included or includes us exercising our agency to receive light and truth and progress. So that's an important distinction because I think sometimes when we're speculating about what God could and could not do, We just assume he, as the omnipotent force in the universe, could just snap his fingers and let anything happen, even despite, you know, free will and our own choice and our own rights and privileges. Okay, so let's talk about physical bodies. For some reason we may not fully understand, physical bodies are crucial to attaining the highest glory and joy we're capable of receiving. Because of this fact, God desired us to receive physical bodies. Doctrine and Covenants 93 verse 25 says, For man is spirit. The elements are eternal, and spirit and element, inseparably connected, receive a fullness of joy. And when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. Moses 6 verse 9 says, in the image of his own body, God's own body, male and female, he created he them. And that's also in the Genesis creation story. So God created us in his image. Doctrine and Covenants 130, verse 22 says, The Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell with us. So here we've established physical bodies are super important. If we want to progress and become like God, we have to have them. And also, if you want to have a fullness of joy, then you've got to have a physical body. Why that is exactly, I don't know for sure but we can take it from the scriptures. Okay, so the creation. God created the world and physical bodies for Adam and Eve. The fall. Adam and Eve chose to partake of the forbidden fruit which God had commanded against. Because they did this, they gained new knowledge and became like God, which is progression. But because they disobeyed God's law, God could not let them remain in his presence and kingdom. That doesn't sound like progression. So here's a question already. Why would God place a forbidden fruit there and command them not to partake of it when partaking of it would lead to their progression? Did he want them to progress? The answer to this one, God told them, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Why would God make them die when they ate the fruit to progress? Well, perhaps the consequence of death when eating the fruit isn't God's retribution for disobedience, but rather is a mere consequence of eating the fruit whatever eating the fruit meant. I don't don't know exactly what that was. I think God commanded against them eating the fruit because of the dire consequence. How could he, in good conscience, allow for his children to make a decision that would bring physical and spiritual harm and death to them? That seems contrary to the nature of God, or any parent for that matter. So, God commanded them not to eat it, and told them what would happen if they did. That way, if they did eat it, they would do so responsibly and by their own free will. Sounds like a good parent, right? But you would expect that from God. So nothing is done to us, or in this case, Adam and Eve, without their, or our, express consent and exercise of agency. We, as their children, assume the consequences of their choices. I'm referring to Adam and Eve there. So it's important to make that distinction, that God does not force these steps of progression upon us, but rather lets us choose them by the um, exercise of our free will. And that's important. This is the way God works, not by compulsion, but by letting us freely exercise our agency. Okay, here's another question. Why did God have to cast them out of his presence? Why couldn't he have just said, well, you did disobey me, but I'm over it. I forgive you. You can stay. Here's the answer to that. God has the role of universal judge and as such must uphold perfect judgment of right and wrong, justice and injustice. He can't blink at sin here and there while condemning it elsewhere. He must be consistent. That means any time his laws or the laws of any kingdom are disobeyed, he must acknowledge it and ensure that judgment is made. In this case, Adam and Eve had disobeyed his law, and disobedience makes one unclean and unfit to dwell with God, or where he dwells, with Him. Hence, Adam and Eve and the whole earth had to be cast out of God's presence because they were not worthy of his law or him, and additionally, as God mentioned, the fruit led to physical and spiritual death, meaning they were now all mortal and must be cut off from their spiritual life source, God himself, and become spiritually dead. If God were to contradict the law and make a flawed judgment because he really didn't want Adam and Eve to die and leave him, he would violate his role as perfect judge and executioner executioner, and would hence break the law himself and become unfit for being God. I know that sounds blasphemous. How can God disqualify himself from being God? Well, by breaking the definition of who he is. He is perfection, and consistently so. By breaking that, he would become something else, something lesser, and would not be the superlative form of himself. I know that's getting a little philosophical and wordy there, but I want to be particular. Okay, so this is where the atonement comes in. So, God immediately after the fall sent angels to declare to Adam and Eve the course for redemption. He had anticipated their fall and planned a remedy. This remedy was Christ. Okay, so let's get the circumstance straight here. So far with Adam and Eve in the fall. Adam and Eve found themselves burdened with two major consequences. Number one, spiritual death. They're cut off from God, and not only was he probably a source of spiritual life and light that they now don't have, but now they're subject to the baser and more carnal spiritual forces that exist in this lower sphere, namely Satan and his fallen angels and demons who roam this sphere and have power to attempt to torture us here. So the second major obstacle or problem is physical death. Now they're going to die and lose their physical tabernacles and be stuck as spirits, subject to those awful spiritual forces mentioned above for eternity without their bodies. Sounds like a very bleak picture that they are stuck in. So it's not pretty, but um, how long do Adam and Eve have to do this? Well, as Squintz says from Sandlot, forever. That's a big problem. God deals eternal decrees. Someone who has disobeyed him will always be someone who disobeyed him, and hence they um, they who were ever unclean will always be unclean. This cost is an eternal one. Our debts last forever. We can't work really hard and pay it off because it demands our eternal existence. No matter how hard we try, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Well, man, this is a tricky scenario. What do we do? God figured it out. He's very clever. So, somehow, according to the Celestial Legal Dictionary, Chapter 2, under subheading A and subsection 3, it says, and I quote, Celestial beings can assume payment for adopted children, even when those children are fallen and have accrued substantial debt up to but not exceeding the amount of infinity and eternity, as defined in subclause 1.3.2. Of course, I'm joking. I don't have that book. But, all joking aside, God's plan utilized a celestial law that allowed for vicarious payment to be made by offering his own son, who would have to be, he would have to condescend way below his celestial glory and subject himself to mortality and a fallen world. By being the son of Mary, Christ would inherit mortality and physical death, but he was not the son of Adam and did not become deserving of spiritual death. He was still qualified for spiritual life, connection with God, that life source. So he was the son of God, hence he lived on earth as a mortal, but maintained godly power and life, both of which we had lost. This allowed him to pay that eternal cost for each of us adopted children under his new law and release us from the old law under Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I love that. It's a really simple, quick way to put it. We, we all were affected by the fall of Adam, which some people say, hey, that's not fair. I'm not the one who fell. It was Adam. Yeah, well, all fell by one, but even so, all will be redeemed by one. Christ is the one who re- redeems us. You know, it's, it's also not fair that one person redeems us all, but it makes up for the difference. In Romans 7, 1 through 4, Paul says, "'Know ye not, brethren, for I speak unto them that know the law?' How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law. So she is not an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law of the body of Christ or by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God So I love this um, Christ assumed the whole weight of the law of our father Adam and carried it down to the eternal death totally consuming it and rose as a new father and a new covenant for us where in Paul's analogy Israel is freed from the law of her old husband he is dead and she is liberated by a new husband with a new law, who is Christ. Question here, but how did Christ pay this? Did he just suffer a lot of pain? Our debt included the eternity of our existence living in our fallen circumstances, right? Cut off from God and our bodies. How could pain translate to this cost? Or maybe perhaps it was more than just pain. Well, here's what uh, some scriptures say. Abinadi says this about Christ's sacrifice and what it what it entailed. Yea, even so he shall be led, crucified and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto the death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father, and thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men, having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death. Taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. So there he gives a little bit. Um, he conquered death. He broke the bands of death. He took upon himself our iniquities and transgressions. Okay, let's see what someone else has to say. Jacob from the Book of Mormon. In 2 Nephi chapter 9, verses 21 through 23, he says, And he, Christ, "...cometh into the world, that he may save all men, if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who belong to the family of Adam. And he suffereth this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at the great judgment day. And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God." So Jacob explains that he suffers the pains of all men, uh, every living creature, both men, women, and children who are from the family of Adam. Hey, that's us. And he suffers it, as Jacob says, so that the resurrection can pass upon all and that we can stand before him at the judgment day. Okay, so that adds a little more. Says he suffered the pains of all men. Uh, The suffering occurs so that mankind can be resurrected. Why? I I don't know. I don't understand how this vicarious law works exactly. Remember, Christ and God are eternal beings. We live in three dimensions and comprehend only the time slice that we live in. We can only travel through time sequentially forward, not backward. God and other eternal beings, I presume, can comprehend the whole of time at once and have thoughts and ways much higher than ours. The fact that we don't understand issues having to do with infinity and eternity is not that surprising. Let's just accept that Christ was able to pay our eternal debt for each of us through his atonement. Okay, I'm going to read one more. This is from Alma, and it's in Alma 7, verses 11 through 13. A lot of scriptures here. I know sometimes the uh, the way the scriptures are worded, it's kind of hard to follow the audio. I hope you guys are able to follow this along, but feel free, pull out your scriptures, and just look at this while I'm reading. So Alma 7, 11 through 13. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which saith, he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death, which bind his people. And he will take upon them, or him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that they may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. So that gives a lot of information. It says that Christ's atonement entails suffering pains and afflictions and temptations too. Not just pains, but temptations of every single kind. Um, what else? He takes upon him death. He takes upon him everyone's infirmities. infirmities. And it's interesting here that it says the, one of the reasons he does this is so that he'll know how to succor or help his people with with their infirmities. And then after that, Alma says, well, the, the spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the son of God suffereth according to our flesh so that he can take upon him the sins of the people. So I, I thought it was interesting he said that because he's kind of suggesting that because Christ suffered these things, he knows perfectly well what we're going through. And then, you know, that kind of is already implied because he's omniscient, right? He, well, didn't he already know everything? So what more could he learn by having this experience? And uh, I don't know exactly the answer, you know, experience, experiential knowledge versus uh, just knowledge acquired through some other means. Anyway, thought it was interesting, but we do learn that Christ had taken upon him suffering, pains, infirmities, um, and death for all of us. Okay, so we've covered that the atonement is super deep and expansive, covers us all. We don't understand everything about how it works, but we know it works. So, now the question is, does this whole plan work, the plan of happiness? Well, for the plan to work, it would have to solve those two major obstacles we mentioned in the initial circumstances Adam and Eve found themselves in, which were spiritual death and physical death. Jacob, from the Book of Mormon, explains the answer beautifully and perhaps the most expansive sermon on the atonement and resurrection in all of scripture, 2 Nephi 9. Um, If you guys haven't paid attention closely as you've read this chapter, read it again and again and again. 2 Nephi 9 is seriously one of the best chapters in all of scripture on the atonement, and that's really saying something, especially with all the chapters in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Alma 42 and Uh, Alma 41 and Alma 34, there are so many good chapters, especially in the Book of Mormon and in Romans. I really like some of those. But 2 Nephi 9, I think, takes the cake. Okay, so here is uh, verse 10 through 13. Jacob says, Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster. Yea, that awful monster, or that monster, death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And because of the way of deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave. And this death of which I have spoken, which is the spiritual death, shall deliver up its dead, which spiritual death is hell. Wherefore, death and hell must deliver up their dead, and hell must deliver up its captive spirits." and the grave must deliver up its captive bodies and the bodies of the, and the spirits of men will be restored one to the to the other and it is by the power of the resurrection of the holy one of israel oh how great the plan of our god for on the other hand the paradise of god must deliver up the spirits of the righteous and the grave deliver up the body of the righteous and the spirit and the body is restored to itself again and all men become incorruptible and immortal And they are living souls having a perfect knowledge like unto us in the flesh save it be that our knowledge shall be perfect so there um jacob comes up with the name hell to refer to spiritual death and for physical death he calls it death very creative as jacob described christ conquers both of these for all mankind so does it work yes it does work it solves both of those problems spiritual death and physical death Um, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 76, verses 42 through 43 say that he came in, or sorry, that he came into the world, even Jesus Christ, to be crucified for the world and to bear the sins of the world and to sanctify the world and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness that through him all might be saved whom the father hath put into his power and made by him who glorifies the father and saves all the work of his hands except those sons of perdition who deny the son after the father has revealed him. And then Paul puts it beautifully too. um, In Romans five, verse 19, he says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's kind of how I said it before. um, That it was by one Adam that all fell. Well, it's by one Christ that all will rise. So it makes it fair. And in that Doctrine and Covenant 76, one, if you noticed, I kind of put emphasis there when it says that Christ saves all the work of his hands. And some people could say, well, what, everyone's going to be saved? Yeah, everyone is going to be saved. <laughs> and I know that might uh, take some of you by surprise, but salvation, what are you talking about when you say salvation? Because really, what, what are we being saved from? We're being saved from death and hell, which, as Jacob put it, is the death of the body and the death of the spirit. Both of those things will be solved for everyone who came here on earth, except, like it says, the sons of perdition. I I guess they won't be restored totally back to spiritual life, but they will be resurrected with physical bodies, uh, at least the sons of perdition who came here on earth with a body. So Christ will, with his power of the atonement, resurrect every single person who came down here to this second estate of earth, and he will bring them back to the Father, Hence, you know, they'll be reunited with the Father with a body. There you go. You solved both of the problems. He paid them. And, um, you know, some Christians misunderstand the importance of the resurrection of Christ and for ourselves and think it's, uh, you know, maybe just a super, superfluous grand finale to God's grand act that He just threw on top. Like, oh, yeah, look at my power. I can resurrect people too. In fact, uh, some people describe the resurrection in vague terms that degrade the significance of Christ's attainment unto a new physical body. Some think that physical bodies won't be had in the afterlife and are just a part of mortality. Some even consider bodies loathsome and burdensome and think that ridding ridding themselves of a body will be beneficial to them. They don't understand that if, um, if God and we who are participating in his plan didn't care for the physical bodies, the whole point, or I should say more, If we didn't care for the physical bodies and didn't gain them again, the whole point of the fall would be utterly futile and a waste. Because remember, we already existed with God as spirits before this life. Hence, why would they say we're returning to God? We already were with Him as spirits. So, going through all this fuss just to end up in the same place we began in, in the same circumstances, would just be stupid and pointless. And, you know, I think sometimes we don't think about that. I know it sounds harsh, but guys, think about this. Like, you know, if God just wanted us to be spirits with Him, well, why would he put us through all this trouble? We already were like that. Uh, So anyway, it's a little silly. And, you know, even some other religions that aren't so concerned about the resurrection and stuff like um, Hinduism, which is more along the reincarnation route. I think, you know, I may be largely misunderstanding their religion because I haven't studied it in depth, but I think isn't the point to like become united with the Brahma or the Brahmin And uh, to really transcend elements and physical bodies and to become like one with the consciousness of the universe. So I think this this idea of ridding ourselves of bodies somehow sounds appealing to some people in this like new age spiritualism. But guys, that's totally contrary to God's plan. Bodies are super important and you gotta have them to have a fullness of joy. So with that being said, um, the tokens of true salvation from the fall are being restored to our bodies, physical life, and being restored to God, spiritual life. To sum it up, here's an analogy that I came up with. I don't know if uh, this is like exclusive to, to my thought, if anyone's made a similar analogy before, but I thought it was really clever, really good to explain our circumstances and the need for atonement and how it works. So here it is. Consider a couple who are slaves to a wicked slave master. While being enslaved, this couple has many children and then they die from sickness the wicked slave master, by law, owns all of the children born to his slaves. Thus, all these orphaned slave children incur the debt and status of slavery from their parents to the wicked slave master. These orphaned slaves inquire about the cost of their freedom to the slave master, and he tells them the law states that they serve him to the death unless they can buy their freedom, but the cost is one million dollars a head. None of the enslaved children have even seen money before or have any means of acquiring money or earning it. In fact, they never had a chance to interact with anyone but with each other and their slave master. So you see it was impossible for them to earn any money. At best, they could serve to their, mas- their ser- master to the death, and any other effort was futile, or just ending their life early. One day, though, a rich man comes and speaks with the wicked slave master. He offers a full asking price for each of the enslaved children and pays the slave master. The children become free from the wicked master, but now they're vulnerable, helpless, naked, and without skill or learning. So the rich man adopts the children as his own and clothes them with the best clothes, offers them the best education. The children were so young and ignorant and naive at the time that they could not comprehend the full extent and weight of how great a thing the rich man had done for them. Some of the children foolishly rejected the help of the rich man and sought to make it on their own. Others worked hard and learned and grew, using his resources and programs to become much like their new father. This analogy shows our circumstances pretty well. We're like the enslaved children who owe a great debt that we're incapable of paying. In fact, we're incapable of producing the only currency acceptable for our new redemption. Our only option is to pay our debt by serving our time. All of it. The whole time. All the time we have. (laughs) That's how long it takes. The rich man is like Christ, who, being acquainted with learning, wealth, and the laws, was capable not only of redeeming the slaves, but of improving their circumstances and teaching them to become like him. Christ redeems us because all who received bodies will be resurrected and brought back before God. But not all accept what what goes beyond this. Um, Just as some of these enslaved children weren't willing to work and learn, which led to accepting all the great gifts of the rich man, uh, not all will be resurrected to the same glory. Some will accept all that God is willing to give, and others will content themselves upon lesser and carnal things, and they'll receive a lesser glory. So I think this is an important distinction to make that, first off, guys, Christ redeems us from the fall. He, he fills in all of the um, the payment and debt that we incurred as the children of Adam from the fall. So, but being, being redeemed merely from those things is not enough. God wants to give us more. He wants us to become inheritors, joint heirs with Christ. That is what Paul says, right? Joint heirs with Christ. I think a lot of Christians really reject this idea and become uncomfortable with that label, joint heirs with Christ. Guys, okay, like he wants us to inherit everything. And this is something that we really preach in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I love. Um, so, like I said there, some people, you know, even though they're redeemed maybe aren't willing to use their agency and free will and exercise that to accept the next step and to make actions to progress and receive more that God wants to give. Some people just content themselves on being redeemed and say, eh, "Yeah, I'll do it on my own now. I'm not going to deal with him anymore. And God says, okay, you know, your, your agency is important to me. I'm not going to force you to do anything. So talking about how people will receive different degrees of glory, it's not going to be into this binary classification of heaven and hell. Here's what um, Joseph Smith had revealed to him, which is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 21 through 24. It says, And they who are not sanctified through the law which I have given unto you, even that law of Christ, must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom, or that of a celestial kingdom. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. Therefore, he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore, he must abide a kingdom, which is not a kingdom of glory. So <laughs> um, there it's, it's just saying like, you know, there are different levels of laws of worthiness and, Standards that you can be willing to live and if you're not willing to live the highest you can't enjoy that glory But you will be able to live where you enjoy and you're comfortable living. You know if someone really just uh, Doesn't want to live a moral and virtuous life well, you'll live in a level of degree of glory or a lesser glory that is equal and uh, appropriate for the standards of morality that you're living Okay, so I don't want to go too much on that because this isn't really about uh, Judgment Day and Kingdoms of Glory. It's more about the atonement and resurrection, but there's some overlap there. Okay, so let's go into uh, just some other topics, justice and mercy, that were kind of intertwined in that story of the plan of happiness. So I'm going to ask some questions and let the questions lead the discussion here. So question one, why do the laws of justice exist and who or what made them so? Here's the answer, at least my answer. Can we agree first that good and evil exist? I know in today's age, people want to be like moral relativists and say, oh, there's, it's all subjective to whoever you're asking. Well, that's bullcrap. <laughs> there, there are objective morals. And as a Christian, as a theist, I believe that. Um, and I think if you're atheist or agnostic, it is difficult, very difficult to ar- make the argument of objective morals, meaning that right and wrong exist no matter who you are. Even if we were all dead, they would still exist so um, let's get that straight so first off we do believe good and evil exist and that objective morality exists okay we've gotten that far what about objective laws then if you have laws they must be enforced how can they be enforced fairly well before going further lehi taught why the law must exist. If some of you were asking that, you're like, okay, I can get the good and evil thing, I can get the morality that that exists. But why do there have to be laws to define it? Can't we just like say, yeah, it exists and that's enough. Well, here's what High said. If you shall say there is no law, you shall also say there's no sin. If you shall say there is no sin, you shall also say there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. And if there be no righteousness, nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. And if there is no God, we are not, neither the earth. For there could have been no creation of things, neither to act nor to be acted upon. Wherefore, all things must have vanished away. Wow. Lehi likes to put it straight, doesn't he? He's a very logical guy. And I know this doesn't uh, hold up to the level of scrutiny that a lot of philosophers uh, try to maintain with a uh, deductive or uh, predicate logic. But yeah, guys, this is a, a good argument. I really like this that Lehi says, because, you know, if there's no law, you're saying there's no sin. So law maintains and follows the existence of good and evil. Without good and evil, there cannot be misery or happiness. So Lehi in that same sermon also taught, for it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. Wherefore, it must needs have been created for a thing of naught. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation." Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. So I know this is confusing to hear, right? I read this over and over again, and I'm just now thinking that I'm starting to understand it, probably. But if you're not seeing this on paper, if you're not following me, it's okay. But basically, Lehi is saying a thing or space which is indifferent to good and evil, right and wrong. Becomes a meaningless and insensible thing, which could have absolutely no place in the universe. Such a thing would destroy God's wisdom, for it would imply that God had no meaning for such a thing, no intention, yet it still exists. Thus, no such, such thing can exist. Uh, there must and can only be things or spaces of opposition. Kind of deep, huh? So, again, the question here is about justice what it is, who made it, why, etc. Good and evil and happiness and misery demand laws. Laws demand judgment. Judgment demands or determines consequences or, of rewards and punishments. Rewards and punishments require executive powers of enforcement. Notice here that I've mentioned three necessary forces. And uh, yes, I'm an American, so here we go. Legislative, the law. Judicial, judgment. And enforcement, executive. Yeah, that's the three separated powers in the United States of America. Interesting how the founding fathers of the United States considered these three powers to be crucial to government. They also knew that such powers together entailed too much power to trust to the hands of any single man. So, they separated these powers in the government as three facets. God, however, is perfect and can be and is trusted to uphold perfection in each of these three facets. God stands accountable to uphold and enforce justice as the universal judge. If he violates the laws, he would cease to be God. Alma 42 verse 13 says, Now the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. So who made justice? Well, I don't know. Perhaps it just exists like truth. Why does it exist? Because good and evil exist. Why are the laws of justice the way they are? Well, I don't know. Uh, Can these laws be amended? I would say no. God is consistent. Heaven has been around long enough to have uh, consistency in eternity, especially in its governance. So here's another question. I hope I answered that one above of (laughs) why do the laws of justice exist as the way they are? And who made them? So that's about what I would say on that. I know I didn't answer every single thing, but let's move on to the next question. Why can't God and all the eternal lawmakers and upholders just decide to waive mankind's punishment? Here's the answer. Could God have solved this dilemma in a better way? Technically, God could have allowed Adam and Eve to partake of the tree of life after eating of the forbidden fruit. Right. This way, they would have a, they would have at least not been subject to physical death. But Alma actually addresses this. Thank you, the Book of Mormon. Uh, here's what he says in Alma 12, verse 23. And now behold, I say unto you that if it had been possible for Adam to partake of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, meaning after the fall, there would have been no death and the word would have been void, making God a liar. For he said, if thou eat, thou shalt surely die. So, oh yeah, we say, aha, remember, I I forgot about that. God did tell them, oh, if in the day thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Um, So yeah, okay, well, we can't do that. God can't be a liar. And again, you, you can kind of ask, well, man, wh- why did God tell them that? If it, if that's the trick, you know, why didn't he just say, um, you know what? You can actually eat that fruit. It's okay. I mean, you'll die, but you can eat it. Well, we kind of already addressed that. Just go back and listen again um, when I'm talking about the fall part. And I kind of address that issue. Um, but basically, yeah, that we, we probably, we believe that the fruit probably just led to physical death and that was just a consequence of the fruit, whatever that was, Um, so anyway let's move on so god couldn't be a liar here um adam and eve couldn't have been allowed to avoid physical death at this point what about spiritual death couldn't all the heavenly hosts just let adam and eve off easy forgive them and let them live in heaven anyway adam and eve violated god's explicit commandments and hence became unclean remember if god permitted them to stay he would make his kingdom unclean and that could not be so here's another question. How could uh, good and evil exist without being defined in law? Could that could that be the case? Could you just say, yeah, good and evil exist, but do we really have to write it in law? Yeah, I kind of already addressed that too, but I did want to quote this scripture, Alma 42, verses 19 through 22. So Alma says here to his son, Corianton, Now, if there was no law given, if a man murdered, he should die. Would he be afraid... He would die if he should murder, and also if there was no law given against sin, men would not be afraid to sin. And if there was no law given, if men sinned, what could justice do, or mercy either? For there would be no, or they would have no claim upon the creature. But there is a law given, and a punishment affixed, and a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth; otherwise, justice claimeth the creature and executeth. executed the law and the law inflicted the punishment. If not so, the works of justice would be destroyed and God would cease to be God. So there, I think the big crux of this is like, if you don't have law defined, then when men sin, justice cannot work because it has no leverage. It has no grasp or definition because you can't say like when someone did wrong, hey, uh, that wasn't very fair or killing that person wasn't very nice. And they just say, what? By, by what law? What do you, you know? Who's to say it's bad? And so you, you get where I mean, like you know, if good and bad, it, you can say it exists, but unless it's defined, justice has no grasp. Okay. So question review: These are the same questions we asked in the very beginning, and I don't have these ones written down, but I'm going to try to answer them based on the understanding I have gained through the study of this and the you know the things we've been talking about here. So first, I asked why did Christ die? Well, he died to pay for, you know, the, the payment, uh, the debt that all fallen men had inherited from Adam and Eve, so that we could conquer physical and spiritual death. Okay, next question. Why did humans need to be redeemed? Well, that's because we're fallen and sinful. Uh, same answer that I would probably have given before this study. Uh, there's just a little more context and information behind that answer. Okay, third question Why did God make us fallen and sinful if it would mean having to redeem us through God's or Christ's suffering and death? Well, this is, I, I think, a question that uh, a lot of times people try to really manipulate answers by asking a question that implies something that's kind of skewed or false. So here it's saying, Why did Um, God make us fallen and sinful, if it would mean just leading to Christ having to pay for our sins. Well, I would argue that God did not make us that way, but we chose to partake of the fruits and became that way by our own choices. So God didn't make us that way, but he did offer us Christ uh, to take the next step in our progression. Okay. Why can't we pay for our own sins? Well the answer to that is because you know we technically I guess we can pay for our own sins if you just want to spend eternity as a spirit being subject to the devil in a outside of a kingdom of glory, right? Because uh, that's what would happen if there was no Christ. We'd just be forever subject to the devil and justice is being paid in that way. It's just a uh, not a great circumstance for us so very undesirable. okay um, next question is. Let's see, can God waive the penalty? Uh, No, God can't do that because he would violate justice and become an unjust judge and would cease to be God. So that doesn't sound very good. Okay, who decided it was just to punish humanity with uh, an unbearable punishment they're incapable of paying? Okay, who determines what justice is? Well, we established that truth and morality, right and wrong, they already exist, they're objective and they're eternal. We believe that those are just truths. And so, you know, these laws, celestial laws that say that mankind must be cast out of God's presence, that's pretty standard. God is perfection, and he cannot accept uncleanliness in his kingdom, or else it would be a kingdom of uncleanliness instead of cleanliness. <laughs> so just by, you know, simple definitions here, we say we can see and understand why these celestial laws exist. That only perfection is acceptable in the celestial kingdom. Kingdom in the highest degree. Um, so yeah, it seems harsh on mankind, but God has to uphold that because he is a very strict, you know, being of perfection. But God's also merciful, so he paid the utmost price to redeem us from that. Okay, so let's keep going through here. Um, why does Christ's suffering and dying satisfy anyone or anything, including justice? That just seems like an odd thing to lead to satisfaction. Well, it's not like someone's, uh, you know, I think of, a, uh, what's that like lemur's name or whatever on Madagascar who's imitating the like god of the volcano and when they're feeding the sacrifice and he's like, yeah, he's, he's going to say, mm, that was a tasty sacrifice. Uh, thank you. I'll have another, what, you know, I don't even, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm misquoting King Julian. That's his name. Anyway, uh, you know, that's not what's happening here. It's not like some, you know, Weird uh, God from you know mythology is very satisfied by the blood of Christ being spilt. That's not what's happening. Christ is somehow using a vicarious payment for sins law that exists in you know celestial laws or heavenly laws, and this vicarious punishment um, is able to fly. I mean this this is acceptable. He's able to adopt us, and we are able to be adopted in with him as our Father of the Covenant and us, his children, to inherit him, and he assumes our debt through that process. So, um, you know, that, it's another question that kind of has a misunderstanding uh, interwoven into it. Okay, so I think that answers pretty much the main part of all the questions, and just as we discussed, justice is necessary because of opposition. Mercy can only take effect while upholding justice justice demands law judgment and enforcement god provides justice and mercy perfectly even in the most complex moral scenario which is what we're in and he terms it the plan of happiness so guys that is the end of this episode it is a long one holy cow it's almost 50 minutes well guys it is a deep one and i hope you enjoyed it and are able to really listen to it maybe twice three times go in take notes open the scriptures because i did not um you know, spare any pain in preparing this. I made sure that I went thoroughly and covered these topics and not to say it's, you know, perhaps not without an error here and there, but I think it's painting the picture well and representing my understanding as it has been growing and developing of the atonement and resurrection, which is a topic, again, I hope we study throughout our whole lives and apply it daily. And I believe that Jesus Christ In resurrecting us, bringing us back to the Father, we'll have conquered the great effects of the fall of Adam and Eve. And that Adam and Eve, our righteous parents, um, knew what they were doing and that they they fell that man could be and um, men are that they might have joy, as the Book of Mormon says. Isn't that Lehi? So that is my testimony, guys, and I hope again that you enjoyed this. Share it with your friends. Listen to it again. Take notes. Make sure you understand this because the scriptures and resources that I referenced in here are very good. Uh, Definitely want to revisit them. I will put some reference scriptures in the show notes as well as the website upon which you can submit a form to give me any questions or comments or things you wanted me to address in further episodes or on this one. So thanks, guys. Hope you enjoy your week.